they didn't tell me they were gonna do that. So I got to experience that just like you did for the very first time. That's just how we do it. Uh, hey, I'm super excited to be with you here this morning. If you're in the room, if you're joining us online, so glad that you're here with us. Uh, like Carlos said, my name is Ross. If we've never gotten the chance to meet associate pastor here at our North Campus, and I really am excited. I'm pumped. I'm pumped to be here. Across all of our campuses, you've heard some of the vision we get to as some of your pastors just share a little bit of our hearts with you this morning, what God's up to, how he's teaching us, uh, what he's challenging us with. And, And for many reasons, that's why I love getting to be here with you. Because what I'm learning is that anytime I'm given an opportunity to share what God has been up to in my heart, in my journey. Uh, My hope is that he would show you and maybe challenge you with the exact same things because then we get to process together. If we're being honest, we can authentically process together. And, And like we say around here all the time, we're so much better together than we are alone. And so I say all of that to say for the remainder of my time up here, Welcome to the wild ride that is the internal thought process of Ross Sagehorn. You didn't ask for it, but you're getting it. And so buckle up. We're going to have some fun. Before we get too far, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to think of a time in your life. Maybe it was recently. Maybe it was, you got to go way back. I want you to think of a time in your life when you were waiting on someone or something to show up for you. You're waiting on someone or something to show up for you. And if you're being honest with yourself, you weren't sure if that person or that thing was actually going to show up. You just weren't sure. Slightly ridiculous example of this for me, when I was maybe fourth or fifth grade, I was playing hide and seek with my two younger siblings, younger sister Hannah, younger brother Mitch, and and we were playing hide and seek, and just to let you know, this was not like the version of hide and seek you play with your three-year-old niece, where she counts to 10, because that's as high as she can count, and then you run and like half hide behind a curtain with like your legs sticking out so that she finds you, and then you celebrate, and you like give her a snack and watch Paw Patrol. That, no, this was extreme hide and seek. Whole house is in play. Nothing is off limits. You might die before they find you, but it'd be an awesome story, hide and seek. And being the older sibling, all the older siblings in the room are online. You're going to get me on this. Being the older sibling, I was in it to win. Like, I wasn't going to let Hannah or Mitch beat me. So here's what I did. It's my brother's turn to start counting, and as soon as he starts counting, I immediately run downstairs into my parents' basement. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. I ran into the storage closet because I knew that that's where my dad kept all of his camping equipment, and, and I particularly ran to these sleeping bags that, for whatever reason, he would hang from the ceiling, I think to like air them out, He'd hang these sleeping bags from the ceiling with the opening just on the floor, hovering inches above the floor. And my plan was to crawl into the opening and just stand up. Sleeping bag hanging from the ceiling around me. My thought was, from the outside, you couldn't tell that anybody was inside the sleeping bag. I thought it was a brilliant plan. The only problem with my plan was, like Carlos mentioned, I grew up in Colorado. So this wasn't your average spend the night at a friend's for a sleepover sleeping bag. This was a heavy-duty sleeping bag. This thing was rated to like zero degrees Fahrenheit, designed to keep you 
incredibly warm in incredibly frigid temperatures, which is great if you're camping in the high country of Colorado. It's horrible if you're trying to hide from your siblings for as long as you can. 10 minutes in, I'm slightly concerned, okay? Wheels are starting to turn in my head. 20 minutes in, I was sweating like I had just ran a mile. 30 minutes goes by and I was questioning the intelligence of my two younger siblings. I'm like, you've been in in and out of this storage closet 20 times, like just hit the sleeping bag, do something, like fall into me, you're gonna find me. 40 minutes in, I'm questioning my own intelligence. (laughs) Like, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? And at this point, I was done. I was, I was done. I tapped out. It, to my siblings' defense, they never stopped looking for me. Like I said, they were in and out of that room 20 times. They never stopped looking for me. But I couldn't go another minute. And, and here's the thing. I know that's a ridiculous story. Because for you, the truth is, when you were waiting for that person or that thing to show up in your life, it, it wasn't a game, was it? It... It wasn't a game. The wait felt like it was way longer. The stakes were much higher. Many of us have experienced seasons of waiting when we weren't sure we were gonna come out the other end okay. Some of you find yourself in that situation right now and and to tap out isn't an option for you because you don't know what your life would look like if you let go of that thing you're waiting on. There's this story in the Bible of a guy named Joshua. And Joshua has become one of my favorite characters in all of scripture for so many reasons. Uh, Number one, he's a young leader in terms of his experience. See, Joshua has just inherited a massive amount of responsibility and influence over leading the entire Israelite nation who up to this point has been under the leadership of a guy named Moses. They've been wandering 40 years in the desert under the leadership of Moses, and so Joshua has been given the leadership authority over an entire nation. I don't have that kind of authority, but I resonate with Joshua's journey of growing into his leadership. Second thing I love about Joshua is he's wildly obedient. Like, wildly obedient. I'm learning a lot from that. Joshua is, is tasked with leading the Israelites into the promised land. And the promised land is, is the promised home. It's part of God's covenant promise to the Israelites dating back generations to a guy named Abraham. And so this is a big deal for Joshua. He's been given the authority. He's been given the leadership. He's tasked with taking the nation of Israel home to the promised land. Joshua knows it won't be easy. See, he knows that he has 31 battles waiting in front of him in order to truly occupy the land. The first battle, if you, if you know the story, is of a city named Jericho. Joshua has to go in, he has to take the city of Jericho, and if you're familiar with that story, you know that God's plan for taking the city of Jericho is just crazy. It involves the Israelites basically marching around the city with the national marching band, and at the end of the day, they, they yell at the walls and just hope they fall over. That's God's plan. In terms of military strategy, it's laughable, but Joshua is wildly obedient. He follows God's plan to the letter, and God says what he, God does, rather, what he said he was going to do. He topples the walls of Jericho like they're nothing. 
Joshua was wildly obedient. And, and all of that's really awesome. It is, it's really awesome, but I'm kind of getting ahead of myself because maybe the most significant thing about Joshua's journey that, that I'm learning so much from right now is that Joshua truly understood what it meant to wait on God. He knew what that felt like. He knew what the thoughts in his head sounded like. Joshua knew what it was like to wait on God because before... Joshua led the battle at Jericho or any of the other battles awaiting him before his leadership would influence the establishment of an entire Israelite nation. Joshua had one major barrier standing between him and the Israelites and their future home. After 40 years of wandering in the desert, after 40 years of fleeing the the foreign, strange land of Egypt, Joshua leads the Israelites to their final barrier between them and home. It's the final barrier, but it's Joshua's first test as the leader, as the guy in charge. It's the Jordan River. It's the Jordan River. Crossing the Jordan could be, in my opinion, the defining moment of Joshua's Leadership. He's on the precipice of leading the nation of Israel home. This is the last thing they have in front of them. They've been wandering for 40 years and they get to the Jordan River. And, and this isn't some like little green belt creek that your dog could hop over, right? We're talking at least 100 feet wide, averaging 10 feet deep, that water is moving, and so you're not just going to swim across this thing. You're not just going to wade across this thing, which means if you're Joshua, the question you're pondering in your head is, how in the world are we going to get across? How in the world are we going to get across? And by the way, at, at this point in the story, Moses, Joshua's leader, the guy that Joshua has been learning from and who has been influencing Joshua, who also, as it turns out, has some experience parting large bodies of water, Moses is no longer in the picture. Moses is dead. Not even two weeks prior, Moses handed the baton of leadership over to Joshua only to get to see the promised land from the top of a mountain, never to actually cross into the promised land himself, which means this, and it's so important, we have to realize it. Joshua, at this point in the story, is alone. As the leader, he is alone, and yet all eyes are on him. And I have to imagine the murmuring from the people at this point, right? Because human nature kicks in. They're looking at Joshua, and they're wondering, okay, Joshua, what are you going to do now? What are you going to do? What's the plan? This is the final barrier between us and home. And Moses would have just walked up to the thing and just parted it. Joshua, what's your plan? Which, if you translate those kinds of questions, they basically mean this. Joshua, how do you really measure up? What are you really made of here? Do you really have what it takes? And Joshua, I love the guy. He's he's obedient. He leans in with God. He doesn't even seem to flinch at the barrier that is the Jordan River. Check this out. He says this to the entire onlooking Israelite nation. Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. He says, Then Joshua said to the people, all of Israel, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. See, from day one, Joshua is confident, but notice the object of his confidence. 
It's not him. Who is it? It's, it's God. Joshua says, listen, I know I'm the new guy here. I probably don't even know what I don't know yet, but I'm telling you, God is with us, which means if anything big is going to happen tomorrow, it's not gonna be because I did something big today. It's because God is going to do all of it every day. He's faithful. And so Joshua says, get ready. Consecrate yourselves. Prepare yourselves, because God is gonna blow our minds. And so Joshua gets to work. We pick up the story in verse 12. This is Joshua speaking. He says, Now therefore take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, and when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. Joshua basically calls a huddle and he says, Look, you guys know the play here. We've ran this before. I want you to get the priests, and I want you to take 12 men from the 12 tribes, Let the people choose trustworthy men. I want them to support the priests. I'll tell you why later. And when the priests go into the water, the water is gonna stop flowing. God's gonna do his thing. Again, we're gonna cross into the promised land. Verse 14, so when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan. And just as a sidebar, you have to imagine the people in the city of Adam at this point, just minding their own business on a Saturday, right? Taking the kids to the park, maybe gonna go load up the camel, go see a movie. And out of nowhere, the water of the Jordan River that has just been flowing through their town suddenly rises up in a heap of water. I don't even know what that is or how that works. And it floods the whole city. This is the worst day for the people of Adam. Their Saturday, it's just ruined. But here's the thing. We know that the story's not about the people of Adam, right? The story's not about the people of Adam. It's about the nation of Israel. It's about Joshua. So I want you to think about this because it's so easy to miss what's happening in the story. I've read this story dozens of times, and until recently, I don't think I've caught what's actually happening. See, because I thought that in this story, the water stopped flowing right in front of Joshua and the Israelites. And I think the reason why I thought that is because I've projected parts of Moses' story onto Joshua's story, and in my mind, when God wants to part a large body of water or a river, he just does it. Speak the word, raise the staff, it's done. But that's not what actually happens in the story. It says that the water stopped flowing at the city of Adam. And it turns out that the city of Adam was 18 miles upstream from where the Israelites and Joshua were trying to cross. And so we can't miss this, it's so important. All of the water between the city of Adam and where Joshua was standing, 18 miles of water still had to flow downstream from the city of Adam to where Joshua and the Israelites were standing before they were crossing anything. Which begs the question then, how long does it take for 18 miles of river water to flow downstream? The answer, if you're trying to do the math in your head and you're like, I don't know, it's a long time. It's a long time. Some scholars estimate at least a day 
maybe two days for the water to stop enough for the Israelites to cross. So we can't miss what just happened. Joshua has been commissioned by God to lead the nation of Israel over their final barrier from wandering in the desert to the promised land. The Jordan River is the only thing standing in their way. And Joshua is confident. He trusts God. He trusts that God is going to move. And so he does exactly what God asks him to do. And the miracle happens. Doesn't it? The miracle happens. The water is cut off. God shows up again. The miracle happened, just not in front of Joshua. Just not in front of Joshua. And here's where this starts to get personal because even though this story is thousands of years old, I wonder how many of us have prayed a prayer, believing in God, trusting God, holding on to hope that God would actually move in our circumstances, that he would change whatever's going on down here. And so we prayed a prayer, and when we opened our eyes and said amen, nothing changed. Nothing changed. We thought the water was going to part right in front of us, but it didn't. Let's get really real. We thought the the diagnosis would come back with some good news, and it didn't. It was devastating, right? We thought our career was finally on the upward trajectory, and so when our boss called us into his office, we thought we were getting the promotion. Turns out it was a round of layoffs, and we went home that day. Maybe for you, you're in a relationship, and so you thought that you were making progress with your husband or with your wife or with your kids, and that you're figuring some things out, how to love each other and show up better for each other, but one more fight or one more argument, and you left that conversation walking away wondering, was any of that progress even real? See, the thoughts, the the tapes in our heads that that tell us how messed up we are or how broken we are or how hopeless we are. We thought that maybe one day, if we had enough faith in God, he would make those voices go away, but they didn't. The fear, the insecurity, the anxiety, everything that's debilitating us right now. We asked God to do something, and we said amen, and nothing changed. Nothing changed, And, and if we're being really honest, that's a lot, but if we're being really honest, when it came to those most important parts of our lives, we, we looked back at God because it felt like he wasn't moving and we said, well then you must be a bad God. You must not be very good because either you can't do anything about this God which makes you weak or you won't do anything about this God which makes you mean. Either way, I lose. And this isn't hypothetical, right? We felt this and, and I wasn't there. But if I'm Joshua, if this is me, when when those voices start showing up, here I am on the banks of the Jordan River, I did everything God asked me to do, and when I sent the priests into the water and nothing happened, I'm playing tapes in my head, I'm having a conversation with God that goes like this, God, where are you? I followed you into exactly what you said and nothing's happening. God, what what do I do? And see, we have the benefit of knowing that the miracle happened, right? We know that the water stopped. We know that God did his thing. We know that God showed up. But you know who didn't know that? Joshua. Joshua had to wait and see, and you know how painful that waiting can be, don't you? See, at this time last year, Carly, my wife and I, we were sitting on our back deck, and we had just, just, 
turned off phones, turned off the TV. It's something we try to do at least once a week to just set technology down and check in with each other. Normally it's a Monday for us. And so on this particular Monday, we're sitting outside. It was a gorgeous night and, and we're having dinner. We ask each other questions. Hey, how are we doing? Where are we winning? Where, where do we need to put some more effort or more attention into? And we just like to check in with each other. And, and this particular Monday, I remember wrestling through some things that were going on at work here at Gateway. I'd been asked to step into some new areas of leadership. I was leading new leaders and new staffers, some new departments, and I was trying to make sense of all of that in my head, where I was winning, where I was struggling. There was so much going on in my head and in my heart, and I, I, I don't remember exactly what happened. But as we're talking, something happened to me that had never happened to me before, and I don't remember what it was that set me over the edge, but as I'm processing this stuff with Carly, I just remember my head started spinning and my vision slowly just narrowed until everything around me was fuzzy and my chest just felt like it was tightening and, and before long I, I found I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe and in that moment, I, I, I remember feeling both drunk and high at the same time. And I know you know nothing about that. But I also remember feeling as my head spinning, as my vision is narrowing, as my chest is tightening, I can't breathe. I remember feeling scared. And it was a fear that was totally new to me because in that moment for the first time in my life, I truly felt like I had no control over what was happening. I remember in the like periphery of my vision and my hearing, I could hear Carly. She was asking me questions like, what do you need? How can I help? Babe, are you okay? Like, what do I do? And I, don't, I did, couldn't even form sentences. The thought that kept repeating over and over in my head was all I could think, much less speak out loud. It went like this, God, help. God, help me, please. God, help me. God help, I must have repeated that phrase over and over in my head a hundred times in the matter of moments. And see, here's the thing, I, I said those words, I didn't know if God was actually moving upstream or not. All I knew was in that moment, I felt totally alone. And I'd later process the entire thing again with Carly and a couple pastors that I trust, my 12-step sponsor, and they would confirm for me what I think I was terrified to admit out loud. They said, Ross, it sounds like you had a panic attack. And nothing like that had ever happened to me before, and I wish I could say it was the first and the last, but it wasn't. A couple months later, we're out walking the dog and it's the same thing, we were in a conversation. It was a tough conversation, but I feel like we were on the brink of actually making a breakthrough when out of nowhere, the loss of control, the stress, the anxiety, it hit me and I spiraled in a matter of moments. It went from conversation to stress, to anxiety, to panic. And the good news is, if there was any good news about that situation was that this time it actually lasted 
a little bit less time than the first time, but the flip side of that is I now walk in a reality that says this, Ross, you don't know when it's gonna happen, you don't know how long it's gonna happen for, you don't know where it's gonna happen, but at any moment you could lose control, you could lose all of it, and the spiral tells me that my anxiety needs to give fuel to my fear and I panic, I become overwhelmed, I can't move, I can't talk. A Couple months later, Carly and I went on a much needed vacation. And you know those vacations where you come back feeling just full? just rested. I'd gone several months between walking the dog and this moment, the night we got back from vacation. It's 3 a.m. in the morning, I woke up, and out of nowhere, panic. Overwhelming anxiety. And at 3 a.m., as Carly was sleeping right next to me, I felt alone. I felt like no one saw me. I felt like God wasn't even in the room. And I wonder if that is anywhere close to how Joshua felt, alone on the banks of the Jordan, waiting for a miracle he didn't know was coming, reminding himself of words that God had spoken to him at the beginning of his journey, be strong and be courageous, Joshua. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, yet at the same time wondering, God, is this all there is? Because something's not working, when we find ourselves waiting on God, how do we respond? And if you're anything like me, a question you might find yourself asking in the midst of waiting goes like this, God, where are you? Like, God, where are you? And listen, I don't think that's a bad question. I just think a better one goes like this, God, how do I find you here? God, where are you, assumes that God isn't with you, but I believe God is with us always. And so the better question that I'm training my mind to think is, God, I, I know you're here, but it doesn't feel like it. And so how do I find you in this moment? And the cool thing is, with a story like Joshua's, if we're paying attention, I think God has something he wanted to show Joshua and something he wants to show us about his presence, about what it looks like to wait so here are three things that I'm personally learning from Joshua's story in response to that question, God, how do I find you here in the waiting? Number one goes like this, we lean into obedience despite our feelings. And here's, here's something that's really fascinating about this story. If it really is true that it took a day or two for the 18 miles of water to flow downstream from Adam to where the Israelites and Joshua were standing, question that I think of in my head is like, what were the priests and the 12 men doing for an entire day? And as far as I can tell, the answer is nothing. They weren't doing anything, which brings up all kinds of questions for me, like how did they go to the bathroom and how did they eat? And were these priests just super jacked to carry the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders or did they like swap out? And I know I'm reading into the story a little bit, but the bottom line is still this. We get no indication anywhere in the story that Joshua or the priests or the 12 men ever deviated from God's plan. They heard what God told them to do they leaned into obedience and they did it. 
Which brings up a slightly intrusive question for us. It goes like this. When we find ourselves waiting on God, in spite of how we're feeling about it, because feelings can lead us in all kinds of weird directions, when we find ourselves waiting on God, how often do we recall or lean into the things he's already told us are true? How often do we lean into obedience? Are we training our minds to say, God, I don't get this. I don't understand this. God, I'm not even sure I like this, but I'm choosing to remember what you've already told me, which is what? That you're good, that you're with me, that you'll never leave me, that you're working things out for good, even if it doesn't feel good right now. See, we lean into obedience, recalling what God has already told us, despite how we feel about it. At the same time, we also keep in mind who God has brought us. Second thing I'm learning, we surround ourselves with trustworthy people despite our insecurities. Check this out. One of the most notable differences between the story of Moses and the story of Joshua is that for the most part, God had Moses work in isolation. He told Moses, go up to the water, hold out your staff, and part the sea, and Moses did it. But in Joshua's story, we see God inviting him to surround himself with key members of the community, the priests, the 12 men. It's like they had each other's backs. You get the sense that these men were for each other no matter what. Otherwise, why would they have stayed there for a day? See, honestly, this one can be a little bit of a barrier for me because I can sometimes tell myself that the only reason why people would stick around is because I have something to offer them. The only reason they would stick around is that I have something to offer them. So I can strive to show up a certain way which drives some of the anxiety and the perfectionism for me because I make up in my head that if I don't give you exactly what you want, it's a matter of time until you do the math in your head and say, all right, Ross, you're not what I thought you were. I'm out. I'm going to leave. I'm done. See, the problem is, when we listen to our insecurity, we inevitably push away the people, the very people we're trying to bring around us in the first place because the version of ourselves that we're offering them, it isn't real. It isn't us. And, and listen, what I'm not saying is to just open yourself up to anybody, to just trust anybody. The Bible talks about there being wisdom in guarding your heart in being selective in who you bring around you. But the question is, are we being honest with ourselves? Are we putting ourselves in intentional situations to build healthy, trustworthy relationships? Or are we letting our own fear, our own insecurity, and our anxiety drive separation? Because Joshua seemed to know this, isolation is never where God's going to operate. Isolation is never where God's going to operate. I'll paraphrase Craig Rochelle. He's a pastor I'm learning a lot from right now. He said it this way. You want to know the best way you can know if you can trust someone? You trust them. Because trust is a two-way street. It's shared experience over time. It's saying, I'm going to give you a little bit. And if you're responsible with that little bit, I'm going to give you a little bit more. It goes both ways. It takes time. And we don't like that because time is sometimes painful. Patience sometimes doesn't feel efficient, which leads to the third thing I'm learning from Joshua's story. We make it a habit to remember despite our circumstances. 
See, I might be getting a little ahead of myself with this one because it assumes we know how the story ends, right? See, Joshua and the Israelites, they cross the river. The water stops. And as they're, they're going with the victory in the rearview mirror, it would have been really easy for Joshua to just continue the momentum. They were on a hot streak. They could have just marched straight to Jericho with the momentum of a victory of a miracle behind them onto their first battle and carried that momentum forward. But that's not what we see Joshua doing. Look at this, Joshua chapter four. Then Joshua, after They've crossed the river Jordan, called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what are these stones Mean, then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. See, Joshua is creating a culture among the Israelites, a culture where they make it a habit to remember the faithfulness of God. Why? because they still have 31 battles in front of them and they're human. They're gonna forget, just like we forget. But every time they walk by that pile of rocks, as sons and daughters ask their parents, mom, dad, what, what's with the rocks? Then the mom and dads who were there that day can say, look, that's when God did something incredible, like he does. We just sometimes forget and so we needed to be reminded. Here's the thing. Are we making habits? Are we building habits to remember? It doesn't matter what that is for you. It matters that you try and intentionally put into place small actions that can consistently point you back to who God is. For me, this has been, we're listening to worship songs with lyrics that remind me of who God is, how good he is. I've been known to blast my radio going down 183 because sometimes I just need to be reminded. So it doesn't matter what it is, but let your first action be intentional and be consistent because here's what I know. The waiting is coming. The waiting is coming. You felt it. You're maybe feeling it right now. And it's tough. It's, it's lonely. It's scary. You're not sure if you're going to make it. But, but let me ask you a question. Even if you can't see it yet, what if God is moving in the midst of your circumstances? What if the hope and the freedom and the breakthrough that you've been waiting on is flowing downstream right now? And what if God would look at you and look at me the same way I imagine him looking at Joshua and saying, hey, eyes on me, don't quit. You hear me? Don't quit. Not yet. Because I, the Lord your God, am with you. The miracle is on the move. Heaven has been unleashed in your direction and nothing can stand against it. And so I know it feels lonely now. I know it feels scary now, but hope is coming. Freedom is coming. Just don't quit. Not yet. See, I know for me, 
yeah, I've got a lot of really great people around me. But I'm still not sure if or when that next panic attack is going to come. And honestly, that terrifies me. And I'm working through it. But you know what I know? I won't be alone. And neither will, will you. You have a God who is so fiercely for you. It's the God we sing these songs about. He's pursuing you even when it doesn't feel like he is. He's moving miracles in your life even when it doesn't feel like he is. The words he spoke to Joshua on that day, Joshua, be strong. Just keep being strong. And be brave and be courageous because I, the Lord your God, I am never gonna leave you. I will be with you no matter where you go. Just don't quit. And God's speaking that to you this morning. Just don't quit. So God, we just acknowledge in this moment that, God, we're on the verge in many cases. We're ready to tap out. We're not sure what next looks like, God. We're, we're hoping that you'll show up, but we're not sure. And so God, in this moment, I just pray that in the quiet of our hearts, in the quiet of our minds, you would remind us that you've not left. You never will. And yeah, it might take some strength. It might take some courage. There might be a thousand battles in front of us, God. But if we know that you'll be with us, then we're ready to take one more step. God, we can't do it without you. We need you, Jesus. And we pray all this in your name. Amen.